Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Shoftim this week. We are continuing our way through Deuteronomy. Uh, and so, which means we're approaching, right? Not yet, but we're getting there. The end of Torah. So that at Simchat Torah, the end of Sukkot, the end of the holiday following Yom Kippur, we will uh, officially celebrate uh, ending uh, Deuteronomy. And of course, we immediately begin Genesis. Uh, again, there should never be a pause between finishing the five books and starting them again. So as soon as we read the closing lines of Devarim, we begin the first lines of Breshit. Uh, so, um, but we're not there yet. All right, we are at Deuteronomy 18, and we are in the discussion of the kinds of systems that are to be put in place when the people enter Israel, the land of Israel. It is Moshe uh, essentially giving the structure of the political order that is to be in place. I was just reading um, Foreign Affairs magazine, and I was reading um, about Putin and other personalist autocracies. So these are autocracies that are based truly on the personality of one person. There are lots of kinds of autocracy, you know, military, uh, one ruling party. Um, And this article was talking about the personalist autocracy, um, which is really about the one charismatic leader and everything, all power is really focused uh, in that person's hands. Uh, And so cronies who are close to that person, family members are appointed to important positions uh, and other institutions are undercut on purpose through the legislature and other means um, so that there's no challenge to the. So, for instance, he can now run again because he forced through the legislature the ability to run again in 2024 and 2030. So by erasing term limits, essentially, right, he, he gives himself the ability to. And if you undermine and undercut free and fair elections, then, um, you know, you get to stay in power because um, for the personal. All right. So my point being, this is exactly what our Parsha and the book of Deuteronomy is coming to make sure does not happen in the land of Israel. There is a very clear structure and there is a very clear balance of power that was supposed to be maintained in the land of Israel with the monarch, the king, with the um, judges and other uh, magistrates, other kinds of officials, shoftim vishotrim, so judges and officers. And there is to be, the this is the constitution and everybody has to follow the constitution. This has the ultimate authority, the constitution given by the supreme lawgiver, God, the king of kings. And then there are other, uh, there are other uh, places where power is located. And we're going to look at one of those today. So for those of you who keep asking me, why don't we ever study the prophets? Today is your day. And Jody, if you're one of those and have to leave early, sorry, you'll have to listen to the podcast. This is your day. It has come. We are going to look at the role of the prophet because that's what we've got in our Parsha, uh, and it is one of the approved and one of the most actually powerful positions in the political system of the envisioned uh, early Israelite system. Okay, without further ado, let's jump into the text. So we're going we're gonna to have, as part of Torah, a discussion a little bit about what's allowed and what's not allowed. Whenever we see these terms that are not unpacked or explained, what do we know? What can we assume? We can assume that ancient Israel knew exactly what this meant. So we're going to see a bunch of terms that we don't necessarily understand, and modern scholars don't necessarily completely understand the distinctions between them, but they were not explained here, which means they were well known. And and we know from the ancient Near Eastern record, they are well attested in the ancient Near East. We have cognates for these words in Akkadian, in Ugaritic, um, and Sumerian. So we know that these, these you know, roles existed in the ancient Near East 
Um, and it was very common. And the, the ancient Israelites would have understood this text and would have understood exactly what Torah was allowing and disallowing. All right. All right. So we're going to skip this part about the Levim. Um, and we're going to go to, so we, we heard a little bit of this language last week, if you'll recall. When you get there, don't do that horrible, horrible stuff the Canaanites do. Don't do that. So we're going to get now more of a discussion of that and an outline of what's allowed and what's not allowed. Right, Those other nations, when you enter the land Yudhei is giving you, you shall not learn to imitate the abhorrent practices of those nations. Let no one be found among you who consigns his son or daughter to the fire. That is not exactly accurate. The Hebrew is ma'avir b'no uvito ba'esh. Do not let there be found among you one who causes their son or daughter to pass through the fire. Who is an augur, right? So kosem, ksamim, a soothsayer, a diviner, a sorcerer. Okay, in we don't have an unpacking of what is kosem ksamim. How is that different from a meonen or a menachesh or a mechasef? So Barry might have some insight from what modern Hebrew does with that. It does not help us understand what the ancient Near Eastern specific, um, not just role, but specific practice each one of these is associated with. So we have all kinds of things that could be associated with Kosem Ksamim, so magic, meonen, so a soothsayer. What is a soothsayer? Kind of a, um, it, it depends where you want to get your um, translations of these words from and where you want to trace them back to. Meonen, menachesh, mechasef. So these, these are dealing with the different kinds of ways that people could tell the future. And that they were, these were professionals often who were consulted for this reason. If you're going to war, if there's something serious going on and you want an answer about, you know, what, what's to be or what you need to do, what you need to prepare for. So there's, um, there's lots of ways to do that. So um, we've talked about some of these. Hepatoscopy, right? Looking at the liver of a sacrificial animal. Um, we've got bellomancy. So you, you dump arrows out of a quiver and you see how they fall. And that, that answers some questions. Um, the, there's some people who want to say meonen comes from anan, comes from clouds. So someone who can look at the clouds and understand from that, you know, what's happening. You ask the question and you get an answer based on the pattern of the clouds. So these are very specific roles and and jobs and talents and expertise that would have been consulted in the ancient Near East. What Torah is saying is that, by the way, not that they're not effective, right? Torah doesn't say they're liars and they are charlatans. It doesn't say that. It says you Israelites are not allowed to base your decisions on these people. So I want you all to think about why. Why is it a problem? Right? If I want to go to battle and I want to know what needs to, what's going on, wh- why can't I depend on hepatoscopy for my answer? Wh- why not? Why, why is that a problem? If they're recognized as having the ability to help me, why can't I use them? And Melinda, had a, and Melinda had a question, and, and I have the same question. What, what about astrology? What does this say about astrology? Because I know in some old synagogues found... Okay, 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 okay. It does not say anything about astrology because astrology is not popular yet. So that's going to become an issue when Babylonia has a very serious influence on uh, Israelite you know, philosophy and and ways of, of understanding the universe. Um, and that's why in Hellenistic times, um, Bert, that's when it is. It's in you know Hellenistic times that you start to see that influence Greek philosophy, Greek religion, Greek ritual. That's when you see synagogue mosaic floors, right? With, uh, what's it called? The, what's it called? The 12 signs, the horoscope. Zodiac. Is it horoscope? Zodiac. Huh? Zodiac. 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 Thank you. You see the Zodiac on the floor um, of synagogues then. 
right? Because that's when it's, but that's not popular now. That's not a concern of Torah at the time of the ancient Near East. All right, Barry? Um, I'll try to attempt and answer the question. Why, why shouldn't you use these uh, abilities, the sciences uh, at a time? Right. I'm guessing it's the, it's the best, next best thing they have. Uh, because your victory in war or your ability to find a spouse or whatever you go to these people for is not is dependent upon your own righteousness. It's basically a humanistic, uh, a, a proto-humanistic idea that whatever happens to man is at his own hands and whatever happens to a society is in society's hands. All right, you are way ahead of the time. You're way ahead of the time, which we love. Um, and you're right that we get there eventually, but not here. That's not the reason here. But yes, we're going to get there. Um, and, th- and that's what our most famous prophets, right, are kind of yelling and screaming about are, you know, live a life of righteousness, right? And take seriously your moral behavior, blah, 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 blah. And as a society, that's exactly where the later prophets are going to get to some of the earlier prophets. Um, but, but hang on, we'll, we'll get, we'll get to answering our question. So who else can't you consult? Chover, chover. So we're not sure, but they are practitioners of magic. That's one thing we, we know. The um, Shoel Ov and those who um, inquire of, Ov of ghosts, Biyid um, Oni and um, familiar spirits, and those who consult the dead, necromancy. All right. Again, these are considered efficacious. These are considered le- legitimately pr- professions and skills, and like they're, they're around. If you'll re- if you'll recall, um, Saul consults the ghost of Samuel. Right, so we have this in Torah itself. We have occasions where the dead are consulted. Um, it's you're not supposed to do it because somehow the dead are able to see the future in a way that the living are not. So if you consult them, you you can you can know something about the future. Anyone who does such things, to'avat ose. Right? It's we know this word to'eva. Um, is here? It's abhorrent other places we know it um my brain is just not functional today i don't know why i apologize um what is the word um if you eat pork what is it it's an abomination okay so abhorrent abomination it's abominable all that stuff um it's because of these abhorrent things that you buffet your god is dispossessing them before you so why are the canaanites justly being kicked out of the land They are justly being kicked out because they did all these things. They relied on these things. Y'all don't do that or what's going to happen to Israel. You're going to get kicked out of the land as well. You are to be, and then the rabbis have a field day with the word tam. What does it mean? What is it supposed to mean? How are we supposed to understand that? Um, to Barry's point, some people want to say this is about being holistic, right? That, that, that you don't split things off, that you are to be whole in, in approaching, um, you know, your relationship with yud Hey vav Hey. We're not sure exactly what it means, um, but my JPS commentary, um, you know, seems to understand it in a very specific sense. Um, tamim, you often see used as kind of, in a good way, simple or pure. So you see this on graves, on headstones in Jewish cemeteries. Ish tam. He was a man who was tam. And that's a good thing, right? So it's, it's clearly something about pure hearted, being pure, being whole, being simple and straightforward in your relationships with Yotevav. Hey. The nations that you're about to dispossess do indeed resort to soothsayer and augurs. To you, however, Adonai, your God, has not assigned the like. Why? Here's the answer to the question. Navi mikirbecha 
Me'achecha kamoni yakim lecha Adonai. This is why you can't use them. Because Adonai, Yudhei is going to raise up from among you a prophet. Like myself. This is Moshe talking. A prophet like me, Tishma'un. That's who you will listen to. So what is the answer to the question? Why can't you use necromancy, oleancy? Why can't you use reading clouds? Because that sidesteps God. When you want answers, you need to go to Yudhei Vavhei. And how do you get your answers from Yudhei Vavhei? You get it from the Navi. You get it from the prophet. Now, think about what kind of power that gives the prophet. The king doesn't have this. The judge doesn't have this. The magistrate doesn't have this. The army doesn't have this. The Navi has the ability to share with the inquirer, whether it be the king, whether it be the people, the Navi can answer for Yudhei Vavhei, can tell people the will of Yudhei Vavhei and what Yudhei Vavhei demands. All right, that is a very serious power. That is a very serious authority that the prophet has. And most scholars agree it was a very powerful position in the ancient world. Now, what is your problem? If you remember last week, what is your problem if you're a prophet? Are you a false prophet or a for real prophet? So while it's a very powerful position, what are we supposed to do to false prophets? Oh, yeah. Stone them. <laughs> right, right, Emelinda. So it is a very risky career choice. Um, which is why I think we get such a plethora of prophets who don't want to prophesy, right? They are not interested in being prophets because it's not a great job. Because usually what you have to say is not keep doing what you're doing. Keep driving your Lexus SUV. Keep going on your expensive vacations. Just keep doing what you're doing. That's what yod heh wants. That's not generally the role of the prophet. (laughs) So in general, the prophet is not terribly popular. Think about who the prophet is talking to. Who consults the prophet? What about when it's the king, (laughs) right? What about when it's, you know, the Senate? The prophet is generally not popular with any of these people. And these people are powerful people who can decide maybe this is a false prophet. And then we know what flows from there. Okay. Did Christians use this as uh, uh, foretelling Jesus? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Christians base a lot of the stuff in terms of the authority of Jesus as the spokesperson for God, they base it on these texts and other texts that are not just about the prophet, but are about the son of the, the son of man and the son of the king that will come that is kind of tied to messianic times, tied, tied to eschatology, the end of days. The Jewish texts about that, they also use as the authority for Jesus. As, as predicting Jesus. All right. So this, this thing about the prophet, I will raise a prophet for them from among their own people like yourself. Now God's talking. I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them all that I command him. And if anybody fails to heed the words he speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. Okay, this is pretty, right? This is pretty intense, right? So there are other ways, divination and magic, right, that are, you know, that are efficacious, but they are not approved about learning God's will. Uh, Instead, you have to rely on the word of the prophet. So the prophets also were believed to be able to do what the magicians could do. So it's not off limits for the prophets to use whatever technology they want. That's okay, as long as it's a true prophet. You can't go to a necromancer 
right? And, or, uh, you know, somebody who's going to read arrows from the quiver, but the prophet can use that if the prophet wants or needs to. The prophet would consult uh, uh, about, would be consulted about uh, public affairs, um, the location of lost animals, um, and, and the prognosis for a, a sick person, the outcome of a battle, should we or should we not build an altar or a temple here? These are all kinds of things that would have come to the prophet. And now you're going to tell me, well, how do they know which guy is the prophet? And this is where, this is why I wanted to do a little study with you about prophecy and the ancient Israelite prophet, because we tend to think of one model for what that is. We tend to think there's one guy who's the real guy and we have books of his words, Hosea, Amos, right? Ezekiel, we have their books. And so it's each one at their own time being the prophet. This, first of all, is not accurate. There were many prophets prophesying at the same time. And in some places in early Israel, there were schools of prophets. And in early Israel, there were also prophets associated with different cult sites. So there would have been a group of prophets at Bethel, uh, a group of prophets, you know, at, at, at other holy cult sites in the region. And it, there were schools of prophecy and it was the model of, uh, <coughs> of mentorship. So you might go in as an apprentice prophet and you learn with a prophet and from then you can become a prophet in that school. There were lots of prophets running around. Any prophet who presumes to speak in my name, an oracle that I did not command him to utter or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Should you ask yourselves, how can we know that the oracle was not spoken by Yudhe If the prophet speaks in the name of Yudhe and the oracle does not come true, that oracle was not spoken by Yudhe The prophet has uttered it presumptuously. Do not stand in dread of him. So don't stand in dread of that one. But what should you do with the one that is a prophet of Adonai? Stand in dread of that prophet because they're bringing you the actual word um, of God. Okay, so sometimes, how do you know a prophet is legit? You only know the prophet is legit years later when the, when the prophet has a, a track record of what they've said coming to pass. So, so that, that's one way that prophets get off the hook in terms of right being dragged out you know, as being false is that you, you say, in the next 30 years, the economy is going to turn around. Okay. Well, it's going to take you 30 years to tell me that I'm a false prophet. By then, I'm in Bermuda, (laughs) right? Like, okay. So I want to show you, um, I found a really good article um, also um, online. Encyclopedia Britannica had a very very good article, but it's long and it's pretty involved. I found a much simpler one that I like that that we're going to look at from um, uh, My Jewish Learning. But I want to show you something first. I want to show you, I want to show you this timeline. So, because this helps us kind of put prophecy uh, in perspective. So, when we look at this timeline, what do we see? All right. Now, this, this is a, a fundamentalist timeline. So, I'm not bringing this to you as a reconstructionist. I'm bringing this to you from the fundamentalists. So, uh, there's you know creation, universal history whatever, we would say the stories of creation start emerging here, right? The, the stories of, you know, this patriarch and matriarch start to come together and coalesce as pedimentos out of earlier Canaanite gods and goddesses, whatever, but I'm not going to argue. I just want to show you. Um, here's, here's the exodus. So, you know, here's, you gotta love that. They know exactly when the exodus happened. Um, the entrance into Canaan so and conquest, we would talk about this as the emergence of ancient Israel in Canaan, okay? And even that scholars are arguing about. Um, but, okay, here's, here's what I want to show you. So if you'll recall, 
before the monarchy. Here's the monarchy. There was a whole period before the kings where Israel was ruled by judges, Shoftim, the name of our Parsha. All right. The judge did not mean Ruth Bader Ginsburg of blessed memory. It did not mean someone in robes who was an expert in the law and applying it. That is not what a judge meant in ancient Israel. The judge was was a charismatic military and political leader. Remember, we've talked about what is this, the conquest? If we don't believe in a conquest, if we, if we believe that Israel emerges in the land of Canaan, what we've talked about this a million times, those of you who learn with me, we've talked about it's a loose confederation of those 12 tribes that develop in the region. What does a loose confederation mean? It means when there's a national threat, the, the tribes come together to to deal with that threat, then they go back to their local business. And they are individual tribes with their own territory, their own interests, their own authority, their own cult site, their own worship, their own leaders. But when there's a threat to the entire Bonagid country, you know, the, the, the territory that the alliance controls, the judge is in charge. The charismatic leader who is a prophet, who is a military leader, and who, who is the head politician. That's what goes on here in the period before the monarchy. Note who's there. Who's there? Samuel, Shmuel. Shmuel, judge, prophet, right? And we see prophetess, by the way. We see um, Hulda, the prophetess. Devorah was a judge. So these, the roles all get mixed together in the period of the judges. Then comes the monarchy. Now you split out the powers of the political ruler from the charismatic prophet. The, the, the role of political leader and prophet were together in the judge. Now they're split apart into the monarchy and the prophets who often criticized and challenged the monarch. The prophet was able to do that and keep their head. What does that tell us? That tell us the prophet had a lot of power, that the prophet could publicly challenge the king and was expected to do so and was doing so on behalf of Yudhe Bavhe. The king doesn't have that kind of access to Yudhe Bavhe. So who's more powerful? Just interesting. All right. Look at the period of the kings, right? 1350 to about 586 is, is this arc here. Okay. But look what happens. The fall of the Northern Kingdom. So that's irrelevant, right? You know, the king here becomes irrelevant. So it's this period of time. And we have a division of the kingdoms in here. So we have the Northern Kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Each had their own kings, and each had their own prophets, okay? That's why, look how much longer the list of prophets is when you're talking about the division of the kingdom, because you have northern prophets and southern prophets. You have southern prophets talking to the north, and northern prophets prophets talking to the south, and then you've got the, op- the opposite, south talking to south, north talking to north. You have wisdom traditions and wisdom literature early on in the prophetic period, the monarchy in the period of the monarchy, right? Psalms um, are attributed to David. Proverbs is attributed to Solomon. But these are wisdom schools and literature that's being and philosophy is being promulgated around the time of the early monarchy. But the prophet has a role. But look how many we're talking about in the time of the divided kingdom. Okay? So they have different concerns and different jobs based on where they fall. Jeremiah and Ezekiel 
are going to have a different job because they're worried and concerned and facing different political and religious and cultic realities than these guys. Okay. So the role of the prophet develops, the role of the prophet changes. Look at this time span. We tend to think of prophecy as like, there's this, you know, period where the prophet is really, you know, influential and powerful. And that's what we think of as generally the classic literary prophets. They are late. Early, we don't have any written record of the early prophets. Sometimes we have their students, their adherents writing down their their words, their teachings, but we don't have early stuff from from many of the, the early prophets. So this is a very large time span, which means there's a very large variety of roles, jobs, concerns that the prophets have. All right, so let's look at an overview of that, but well, I kind of like this one too. I know it's very busy. I know, I know, believe me. I have ADD, but look behind Emelinda if you think this is busy. Okay, so we, I know it's busy, but if you take a second and, and like take a breath, It's very helpful for me. I'm a visual learner, which is why I bring you these things. I'm a visual learner. This helps me a lot. Here's your time, right? 1000 BC. So now we can locate. This is when one and two Kings, one and two Chronicles is is going on and is talking about one and two Samuel. Often they're talking about the same set of circumstances and events from different perspectives. Right before that, you have the period of the judges. Right. And this is when the book of Ruth uh, is written as well. It's in the time of the judges, if you'll recall. Um, All right. And then you look at 900. Right. And you have these wisdom, the wisdom literature. You come over here. Why why is that? Okay. Ah, no, 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 no. Don't do that. And it's gone. Okay. It wanted me to move on. Okay. Here we go. Prophecy in ancient Israel. Yeah. Thanks, Melinda. That's really your sympathy. I get it. Okay. So um, (laughs) here we go. Um, So here's, and I just thought this was something I'm just going to send you, you know, you know, Bert, he's going to post it and you'll get it so that if you want to reference it, it's just a nice, clean, um, very, uh, what is it called? Compressed conversation about um, the development of prophecy. So when we talk about in the Bible, right, Moses is the prophet, you know, par excellence, but Moses is not your regular prophet because he he's a lawgiver. He functions as the political leader, the Supreme Court. Like so he's he's a little different than um, your typical prophet. Um, so now this is different from God talking to the patriarchs. God spoke to the patriarchs directly. But here's the thing the JPS commentary also said the thing about prophecy is that it is a social role. God talks to Avraham, but Avraham doesn't come with a message from God to the people, to any people. He lives it out, right, and develops a family, and you might even say, uh, you know, the beginning of a people, but that's different than the role of the prophet. God speaks to the prophet in order for the prophet to bring the message of yud to the people or to the king or to whoever it is that the that or to the priests, um, that whoever the prophet is concerned about addressing. So prophecy has a social dimension. It's not simply a personal religious experience. Okay. Uh, no, no, no. So now in ancient Israel, you can, so it's going to talk about the history, right, of the development of prophecy. So in, in the Bible, we just got all these words for seers, augurs, soothsayers, right? Um, charismatic figures who often went into a trance to prophesy, uh, induced by music and dance. Think of the whirling dervishes, um, right? So uh, often they were a group of them called the sons of the prophets. And these were guilds. These were professional guilds, right? And they talk about the master-disciple relationship. Um, uh, and so here... Right. So it is very distinct from the moral and religious stuff going on at the time. Okay, now, remember, we have to jump from here over the judges. So there's the period of the judges in here. 
You have to always remember that. Then we get to the time of the first monarchs, Saul, David, and Solomon. What's the role of the prophet then? It's, it begins to change. It begins to change and takes on some of the charismatic qualities associated with the judges, right, in the period right before the monarchy. And simultaneously, the king inherits the political and military aspect of the judge's role. The prophet appears as a religious model in the king's entourage, deeply involved in the life of the royal court, but able at the same time to castigate the ruler by means of pointed parables. Recall David and Bathsheba, the prophet Nathan, you know, tells David in front of everybody at the foot of the throne, in the middle of the court, he says, let's say you have a shepherd that has one beloved lamb, you know, and someone, some rich person comes and takes it. Like how, how would you feel or whatever? And, um, and so David says, well, that's terrible. Someone shouldn't do that. That's absolutely abhorrent. And Natan says, well, that's what you're doing by taking Bathsheba, the wife of one of your military leaders. Um, and so publicly castigates David uh, for his affair with Bathsheba, who he took because he had her husband killed off at the front lines. Um, and, and nothing happens to the prophet for this. Nothing Other prophets of lesser importance may have been attached to the major cult sites. Uh, By the time of Elijah and Elisha, prophets were found in both the northern and southern kingdoms who were often in conflict with the kings, um, uh, but they'd not yet developed into literary figures, right? So we don't have the book of Elijah, the book of Elisha, right? We just get stories about them. By the 9th century BCE in both Judah and Israel, because remember, we're dealing with a divided kingdom, the minor prophets, and they're called minor because there's not a huge literary uh, tradition associated with them, were delivering scathing attacks on the two major transgressions of their time, which was what? Syncretistic worship and the social ills besetting the country, Okay. So the division, the the growing gap between rich and poor in the countries. So think about Amos, right? He's railing against the incredible corruption of the wealthy and how they take advantage of the poor. That's all Amos wants to talk about. That and syncretistic worship, right? So that they are worshiping um, other influences um, and Babylonia becomes the chief among them by the way. Um, all right. What's, I'm getting ahead of myself. La, 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 la. These two issues, and this is Barry to your point. This is where it starts to be about the society and how it behaves and individuals within that society, how they behave will now be what the prophets say, determine the future of Israel. This will determine, and what God did to the enemies of Israel, the prophets are super chutzpah and say, If you don't change your ways, God will consider you, Israel, an enemy and will do to you what God has done to everyone who came before you that got kicked out and dispossessed, which is a hugely brave move, possibly stupid move, but it's a brave move to say you can become the enemies of Yudhe too, Israel. All right. So. Um, the unlanded classes, remember, in, in an agricultural society, your wealth was determined by who had land and whose land was fertile. So um, and insisting loudly and clearly that the discharge of cultic duties was of no significance if it was not accompanied by a life of true moral and ethical principles. This is what we tend to think about when we think about Jewish prophets. It is this period and these prophets who start to talk about great with you and your sacrifices. But that means nothing to Yudhe saith Yudhe through me. It means nothing if you are not, your cultic stuff doesn't matter, high priest, Levites. None of it matters if you're not living a life politically as a people and individually of moral justice. All right. So here we have, again, Amos and Hosea, who are in the 8th century BCE. 
um, are the first to leave written documents. Again, it may not be them. It may be the people who follow them and who are trying to promulgate their philosophy. Um, so they, they, they taught and prophesied in public. Uh, and so that's how they're a little bit more widely known. As the end of the monarchy starts to approach, now you have political and religious issues that are new that are going on. And here's your time frame for Isaiah, 740 to 700 BCE, Jeremiah, 627 to 585. That should ring some bells for you people who are my people, my study people. 585 should ring some bells. Why? What's 586? Oh yeah, the destruction of the temple. So already, that just doesn't happen out of nowhere, right? The, World War II, World War One, they didn't come out of nowhere. There are things going on before 586, way things going on. There's already incrosion into the temple. Already things are being taken out of the temple. Already stuff is happening before, 20 years before 586. So this is what Jeremiah is talking about. What's going on? There's a real threat to Israel. Jeremiah is the one who's going to preach of a fall and a return. A fall and a return. That's Jeremiah, because look where he's living. That makes total sense. Isaiah's like, y'all better get your act together. Because what, what falls within Isaiah's time? Oh, right, the fall of the northern kingdom. Assyria conquers. So what is Isaiah going to take from that? How can that happen? How can the northern kingdom of Israel fall unless yud heh wants it? Why would yud heh want it? Because the people are screwing up. That's the only answer. We've talked about this a million times, but now you start to understand why Isaiah is preaching what he's preaching. You start to understand why Jeremiah, and he has these beautiful passages Jeremiah does of the Shekhinah, of God's presence, weeping as she has to move further and further out from the the Holy of Holies to the walls of Jerusalem. And as she weeps for longing to be with the people Israel who are now exiled and she can't be in her home with the Holy Blessed One or the people Israel. It is beautiful, heart-wrenching, heartbreaking literature that promises a return if the people will repent. Okay. Ezekiel is where we get some of our early visual prophecy. We get we get illustration and Maimonides wants to, to say that this is the gift of the prophet. This is the contribution of the prophet. You shouldn't think God talks to the prophets, God forbid, because if you're a Neoplatonist, a Neo-Aristotelian like Maimonides is, you can't have God changing, talking one minute and not talking the next minute. That's a change in God. You can't have that. God is perfection. There can't be a change in perfection or by definition, it's not perfect. So So the talent of the prophet, like Ezekiel, says Maimonides, is their moral development, their wisdom, their connection to the lowest sphirah, the lowest, you know, kind of emanation from God that comes into our world, and their ability to hook up with that. Because of their moral strength, the strength of their wisdom and elucidation and, and, um, and devotion, they can apprehend the active intellect that is always at work in the universe. Don't ask me to explain the active intellect, but right, that's the divine in the world. And people can reach the point, Ezekiel can reach the point of hooking up with the active intellect, developing the receptors to unite with the active intellect and his gift is giving us the visual imagery interpreting what the active intellect of the divine is always communicating. The prophet has the gift of receiving. Can, you know, I think of coronavirus, just it's the times we live in people. What am I supposed to do? So all I can think about are receptors, right? You know, if you, if you have the receptor, it can bind to something. So only the prophet has this spike that right that hooks up to the active intellect um like a virus in a cell to a cell you have to have that key 
So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, according to the medieval philosophers, particularly in Spain, living under Muslim philosophy and Neoplatonism and Neo-Aristotelianism, right? They understand that the, the prophet's contribution is their own intellect, their own soul, their own devotion, their own talent, their own commitment, and their own having cultivated this ability to receive from the active intellect. And they bring forward the visual imagery so that we can understand, so that we lower people can understand what God is trying to communicate. So read Ezekiel on your, in your free time, and you'll see the incredible visual imagery. Uh, you know, God is sitting on a throne and there's a, a pavement of sapphire underneath God's feet. It's very visual. This is where we get the, the, the chariot and the four kinds of animals. And it's just crazy. And the new political reality, so that there's new political realities as well, in the, as well as the growing Mesopotamian influence on Israelite worship. So this is what they start going crazy about is Israelite worship is no longer pure and they're very concerned about it. And so uh, they're addressing the, right, the affairs of the day, trying to bring the people of Israel the messages they believed they had received directly from the God of Israel. Um, These guys, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, bring to culmination the literary development of prophecy. And according to the author of this article, these three great prophets compose poetry and prose that rank among the most beautiful achievements of Hebrew literature. Okay. The profundity, beauty, beauty, and lengths of the prophecies attributed to them rendered these men major figures in the eyes of later tradition. This is true. We will read Isaiah, people, on Yom Kippur. We'll be reading what is it I want from you, right? Is it your sacrifices? <clears throat> on your sacrifices. Rather, it's to break the chains of the oppressed, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to protect the widow and the orphan. This is Isaiah railing against the cult, saying the cult is focused on all the wrong stuff and they're corrupt. And we will later hear this from whom? Jesus of Nazareth. Same prophecy. Same criticism, same stuff. Jesus was one of our guys. He was right in line with this tradition of, of prophecy. He had some other stuff going on, but, but his prophecy is exactly what, what, what our guys, who we do claim, um, <laughs> prophesy. It's the same stuff. So prophetic morality and its intimate connections with the ritual life of Judaism has had an enduring effect. Boom. Okay. All right. So what we, what, what, (laughs) all right. Well, if you want any of my recipes, here they are. Okay. Um, but there should be Torah study. Yeah, there it is. Torah study. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I just want to show you this one more time. If I can get it. Everything's so slow today. Bert, why? I don't know what's happening here. I can't. Okay, so um, this just helped me understand when you've got, so where, what we were talking, oh yeah, Amos and Hosea, when are they writing? You know, or the 800s, then, you know, later you've got different concerns. So Ezekiel, Isaiah, Nahum, they're all worried about different stuff. Um, here's, you got the Israel split north and south during this period. Then we have exile, right? So these guys are writing lamentations. Well, of course, because they're looking at exile. So is Jeremiah. Ovadia, right? That's what they're looking at. Daniel, uh uh-oh, now what are we getting into with Daniel? Now we're getting into eschatology. Now we're getting into, okay, nothing worked, (laughs) right? So there's got to be another answer because the God of Israel did not return. It did not all get reestablished and everything didn't come back to the way it was. So we're going to start looking a little further out to the end of days. So this is where, you know, um, Israelite eschatology starts to get going. The end times, the end of days. Okay. Zechariah, you can see Ezra. Ezra is the priest that comes back from exile and wants to rebuild. And remember, we talked about Purim. Remember, we talked about the Megillah. The Megillah is all about the people who are not coming back, right? Ezra is very concerned. So is Nehemiah. Come back, y'all. You think New York is so fantastic? Well, New York is not Jerusalem. Come back to Jerusalem and build the temple. Leave your Manhattan penthouse apartment, you people who now made your big money in the Golden and Medina. 
bring it back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. That's what they're yelling and screaming about. Um, so Esther, right, is written around this time as, a, as an address to those people living in Mesopotamia. Okay. Ezra and Nehemiah, by the way, they institute the reading of a different piece of Torah because the people they had that had been in exile, all of this destruction, all of this division, the people were not studying the texts. They were turning to the cult. They're turning to the priesthood. They're turning to sacrifice. They're turning to foreign gods. They're turning to astrology. They're turning to all this stuff. And now Ezra and Nehemiah, once the cult falls, what, what, you know, now it's vulnerable. So they start leaning on the teachings of the texts of all of these people, all of these prophets, all of the early literature. They're like, let's go back. And that's where the authority is. And that's where people, Israelites need to focus. They are the ones who say, not only just on Torah, because we seem to have some relationship to that still, but they don't remember any of this stuff. So they decree both a public reading of Torah three times a week in the marketplace. You go to the mall where the people are, you go to Saks Fifth Avenue. If you want to talk to the people, you got to go to Saks. You just got to deal with the reality. That's where they are. So you go read Torah at Saks Fifth Avenue. And, well, TJ Maxx for some of us. And you um, you address the Maxanistas where they are. And you add a piece of Torah that's not this from some of this. That's one theory. Um, and you it's Haftarah from Lefater to conclude, and it becomes the concluding reading, the Haftarah, after reading publicly the Torah. That's where we get Haftarah. That's one theory. There's another theory, but we don't have time. Okay, I'm going to stop. That was a lot. I know, I know it was a lot. Usually we discuss a lot more, but I really wanted to give this to you because y'all, I've been hearing y'all all along. What about the prophets? What about the prophets? Okay, so now... <laughs> now you need to tell me which prophets, right? Wh- which period are you interested in? Which prophets? Which set of concerns? Which north, south, divided, united, early criticism of David and Solomon? You want Ezekiel? You want, right? So that's why it's not so easy to say, how come we don't study the prophets? Because look at that. Do you see the timeline I gave you? And I know Torah is a big timeline too. Don't get me wrong. Um, but, but it's like there's so many background you know, chunks of information you need to understand each prophet in their location, in their time, in their situation, in their interests. What's going on that's pushing against them? What are they pushing against? Who's listening? Who's not? <laughs> right? So You can't just read the text because it makes no sense. If you just look at their prophecy that that is attributed to them, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's like how long it takes me to unpack the background of some of this Torah material that we study. You need that too for every one of the prophets. A lot of what I say for Deuteronomy is in one period. Even if that, even if it's a long period of time, Ugaritic, Sumerian, Akkadian, it's, you know, there's a long time pre-Israel, but I can say from those traditions, we know with the, with the, there's just, each one has its own set of, of uh, situations um, and things going on. Okay. Are we good? Everybody good? Oh my goodness. 22 things in the chat. Did I say that Amos was my favorite? Um, I don't know that I did, but I love Amos because- I feel like you could take the words of Amos and plant them right onto a lot of America today and we would hang our heads in shame. Way back when I studied for my bat mitzvah with you. you oh, okay. So I said it privately, thank God. Okay. So, well, now it's public. Um, but, but Amos, you know, he really is really, really outraged by the disparity of wealth in ancient Israel and the, um, and the focus on wrong things uh, out of that wealth. Um, and uh, I, I think it's just, he's, he's one of those prophets that I, you, and uh, parts of Isaiah too, but Isaiah, he's a little wacky Isaiah, um, but almost is very clear about, about what's going on um, economically and how horrible it is. All right. Um, uh, an important distinction between morality and legality. Um 
meaning that the that the legislation isn't always moral, Barry. That it all it doesn't always have the moral compass accurate. Is that what you're saying? Well, what 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 came to mind was you know all these people, all these men mainly who mistreat women in various ways. And then they try to defend themselves by saying, well, everything was legal. Right. Uh, well, right. okay, but, you know, so the role of the judges is to determine what's legal. But the role of the prophet is to uh, speak about things that are perhaps legal, but are, are going to doom us all anyway if we keep doing it. <laughs> right. Right. Good. Okay. Uh, the bar for your sex life should be higher than I didn't break the law. What I tell teenagers when I teach consent. Yeah. Right. The bar for lots of, of lots of things we do that have a moral component should be higher than I didn't break the law. Right. And, and then we need to talk about the law is the law moral, right? You, you tell me that a corporation is not responsible for its financial debts. Okay. So it goes under and takes the pensions of all its pensioners with it. And it's not responsible. And the people who run it and made those decisions are not implicated. That's legal. Is it moral? You know, so at one time, I understand how that originates, right? To pre- or else people would never start enterprises because they'll be held personally responsible. If the company fails, they'll be responsible for the debt. I get how it starts, but is it moral now? The way people hide behind cor- right, what corporations and the taxes that are paid or not paid by corporations and their CEOs, it's just crazy down. So there's both, is the law moral? And then once you have the law, is your moral code only what's legal is what I hear Emelinda raising, right? And same with Barry, right? These, think, these are very serious questions, Bert. I think, I think a lot of this goes way beyond... The issue of just, is it moral, but are there consequences? And Isn't that what of, morality is about, right? Is what, what, what are the, what are some of the consequences that I, if I do something that's legal, but it's immoral, right? What is its impact? Right. What is an impact? Because basically what the prophets were saying, which is the opposite of secular society in a sense, is that the universe is not deaf and blind. And that in fact, there are, what goes around does come around to put it in contemporary terms, and that there are consequences to immoral behavior, which is not provable, particularly since there are wicked people who prosper and righteous people who don't. But there is a belief, nevertheless, I think, in Judaism, which is one of its greatest contributions to humanity, that it does matter what we do. Well, some of the, well, but the only place I would push back a little is to say, what if you don't believe what goes around comes around? Right. I, I no. I. I mean, this, is, this is the problem. It's the problem of evil. You know. Right. Well, right. That's, <laughs> that's the problem. A is, lot of us are stuck with. Right. Right. What goes but, around doesn't necessarily come around. Right. But the, it's what come the, around and bite innocent people down the river yeah. from your toxic waste dump. <laughs> right. That's right. So then, I, what I wanted to leave you with, uh, mm-hmm. kind of what Bert is saying, I, I want to leave you with. What do we mean when we say that we think certain people are prophets? Like, let's just take MLK, right? I think a lot of us are willing to call him a modern prophet. Tapped into a higher power, a higher force, a higher awareness, a higher, the active intellect, if you want to use Maimonides, which I love, the active intellect in the universe, you know, God's presence in the universe at that level, tapping into that and then translating that into the moral, ethical challenges and the political, you know, the changes that need to happen as a result of that. Um, wh- what do we mean when we say that? Like, I, I, you know what I mean? Like, do we mean prophet? Do we not? Then how do you know if it's a prophet? Right. And I'm not trying to just raise something to be, you know, sexy about it. I, I, I truly, I truly think there are some people who have the, I still believe this. I'm crazy. I know, but I believe there are some people who are so advanced morally, ethically, intellectually with devotion and care that they really tap into 
the absolute moral core of the universe and translate it for their time. And I don't know about y'all, but I get sick of hearing some of them, right? Because like, I'm like every other Israelite. I don't really want to be challenged by the prophet, right? I would change my behavior. What? Right? So, um, but I feel like there's still a role for the charismatic, committed, in, integral, authentic, moral voice of some leaders that um, that still have the ability to affect change in ways that most people don't. Um, so, you know, thank God for them. And they drive me a little crazy. Um, and like, and, and, and I have to hold on to that next time I'm, and I'm in a meeting and someone starts banging their drum, right? There's always somebody who's banging their drum and it's like, I get really irritated. And I say, Amy, really? You Israelite? Right. You're irritated because you don't want to hear it. You don't want to hear climate change. You don't want to hear right, people in another place who are starving. You don't want to hear it because it's inconvenient and it bugs you and it makes you feel guilty. And so I, that's the stuff I need to look at, right? Not, not the purpose, 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 son, banging their prophecy drum. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.